Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. From where we left off last week. Basically, Solomon had four enemies that he had to eliminate. Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, and Shimei. What is important to note about these men is they all put their desires ahead of loving obedience to the kingdom of God. Thus, their stories can give us sort of a test case in temptation. Verse 13, please. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. So he said, you yourself know that the kingdom was mine, that all Israel intended for me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned around and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. So now I'm making one request of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. Then he said, Please speak to Solomon the king, for he will not refuse you, that he may give you give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. And Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak to the king for you. Here we see the external means of securing the kingdom as Solomon carries out the advice of David back in verses 5 through 9. Here we meet execution upon execution, or in one case, commuted to banishment. We start with David's son, Adonijah, who makes a ridiculous request. He approaches Bathsheba with what he says is a peaceful question. With at least a trace of bitterness, he reminds the queen mother, using a bit of exaggeration, that all of Israel had expected him to succeed David. So first notice what a huge sense of entitlement Adonijah still had. He was angry that life had not met his expectations. He complained the kingdom was mine and you know it. Even though he acknowledged Solomon's kingship as the Lord's doing, we can now sense how bitterly that he resented all of this. In a massive understatement he says, but things changed. Well, things are about to change even more as when Bathsheba asked Solomon to secure permission for him to marry Abishag, who was David's last concubine. You may remember Abishag from chapter 1. She was David's human hot water bottle. Adonijah wanted people to feel sorry for him and give him a consolation prize, even though Solomon had already shown him mercy by sparing his life. But mercy was not enough for Adonijah. His whole request was based on the premise that he had something more coming to him. He had lost the kingdom, fair enough, but now what was in it for him? He demanded some sort of compensation. How easy it is for us to take the same attitude when we allow the disappointments of life to get in the way of our own plans and our own little kingdoms. Perhaps we suffer a financial setback, a medical hardship, or a failed relationship. Then rather than believing that the mercy of Jesus is enough for us and trusting our king to know what he is doing, we demand something else to make up for what we think we have lost. I deserve this, we say. And then we take something for ourselves that God does not want us to have, such as some sinful pleasure or some shiny new product. 
rather than letting go of what we want so that we can have what God wants to give us, we find a way to take what we want for ourselves. What Adonijah wanted to take was Abishag, the beautiful young woman who had had attended David when he was on his deathbed. Now, doubtless, his desire was partly sexual. After all, Abishag, it was said, was the best-looking woman in the entire country. And so when Adonijah saw her, he wanted her. But he also wanted the power that she represented. But this is not a romantic story. Don't imagine that Adonijah happened to spot the gorgeous Abishag from across the room, falling in love with her, and then went to Bathsheba with his heart all aflutter. Because the only real love in Adonijah's life was Adonijah. If he'd have been alive today, he would have been the king of taking selfies. And you know why they call them selfies, don't you? Because narcissist is too hard to spell. <laughs> anyway, so he asked Bathsheba, one little request is all I ask, and I hope you'll be so kind. He carefully concealed what the, that request would be in order to make it sound small and trivial, but it was anything but small and trivial. Adonijah's words were as smooth as butter, but his heart was as cold as steel. And students differ in their interpretation of Bathsheba's role in this scenario. Some say that she was very naive in even asking Solomon, but Bathsheba had already proven herself to be a courageous and very influential woman. I think it's more likely that she suspected another plot because she knew that possession of a king's wife or concubine was evidence of possession of the kingdom. It's difficult to believe that the king's mother would have been ignorant of this fact. I may be in error, but I feel like she took Adonijah at his word, knowing that Solomon would use this as an opportunity to expose Adonijah's scheme. Without expressing any verdict on Adonijah's request, Bathsheba agrees to take that petition to Solomon. Now, we have seen this woman as she has cooperated with Nathan, exposes Adonijah, and has generally made prudent moves in the halls of power. Thus, I think it's evident that she understands the nature of Adonijah's request and prudently then warns her son of his rival brother's power play. At this point, one scholar, Riley, remarks, Unfortunately for Adonijah, Bathsheba does what she promised, and the king is going to explode with explosive anger. Verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king stood to meet her, bowed to her, and sat on his throne. And then he had a throne set up for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I'm making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. But King Solomon answered and said to his mother, And why are you requesting Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Request for him the kingdom as well, for since he is my older brother, for him, for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do to me, and more so, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his very own life. 
Now then, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and has made me a house just as he has promised, Adonijah certainly shall be put to death today. Then King Solomon sent the order by Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him so that he died. Already showing something of the wisdom for which he will become famous, Solomon was not deceived for a moment. Immediately, he saw the political dimensions of this small request, and he saw through Adonijah's pretensions. As far as Solomon was concerned, to ask for Abishag amounted to a bid for the kingdom. After all, Adonijah was still the older brother. He also still had powerful supporters in Joab and Abiathar. If he were to add to that the legitimacy enhancing marriage to King David's concubine, he might just achieve his ambition. But even if Adonijah's request was not sinister, it was monumentally stupid. Assuming Adonijah even had a modicum of sense, he would surely understand that Solomon could reasonably interpret this request as subversive, should he choose to do so. If Adonijah wanted to live, all he had to do was sit still and keep his pie hole shut. Instead, Adonijah came to a regrettable end. His sinful request proved that he was not a worthy man, like we learned at the beginning of the chapter. He knew he was supposed to be the king, but he refused to submit to the kingship. He put his own lust for power and pleasure above God's kingdom. He would not give up what he wanted for the glory of God, and so he perished in his sins. Look at verse 26 with me. Then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything with which my father was afflicted. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest of the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken regarding the house of Eli in Shiloh. Like Joab, Abiathar deserved death for his part in Adonijah's attempted coup. He was spared, however, because of his service as priest and because of his history with King David. The deserved death sentence was commuted, and as far as we know, he lived out the rest of his days in Anathoth. However, Solomon's treatment of Abiathar was complicated. Although Abiathar mercifully did not lose his life, sending him to Jerusalem to Anathoth involved stripping him of all the responsibilities and privileges of being a priest. It's fascinating because many years earlier in the days of Abiathar's great-great-grandfather Eli, the Lord had announced the end of the house of Eli serving as priest because of the corruption of Eli's sons and Eli's own ineffectiveness in curbing their ways. Here we see the fulfillment of that prophecy as Abiathar, who was the last of the house of Eli, is going to be removed from the priesthood. Here we meet a theme that we're going to see again and again in the book of Kings. Through the ups and downs of history, by the worthy and unworthy actions of human beings, the Lord is accomplishing his purpose, keeping his promises, 
and always fulfilling his word. All who set themselves against God's king as Adonijah had done, or put themselves on the opposed or being opposed to God's king as Abiathar had done, forfeit forfeit the right to live in the kingdom of God. Just so, 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But all of this makes Abiathar perplexing to me. As it seems to me that he had somehow lost his way. His earlier faithfulness was no guarantee that he would finish well. It's weird. Through the darkest days he had remained true. But at the end he was seduced by Adonijah's aspirations. Had he become disillusioned with David? Had he become jealous of the increasing prominence of the relative newcomer Zadok, his fellow priest? We do not know. And we need to be careful not to draw the parallels too closely between Abiathar's particular circumstances and Christian experience today. But servants of the Lord Jesus should note how a lifetime of faithful service even through great difficulties, did not make Abiathar immune from bitterness, disillusionment, and even rebellion at the end. The parallel today is we can still be saved, but our conduct can remove us from certain ministries and mar our legacies. Verse 28. Now the news came to Joab because Joab had followed Adonijah, though he had not followed Absalom. So Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was reported to King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. And Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go execute him. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, This is what the king has said, Come out. But he said, No, for I will die here. So Benaiah brought back word of the king, saying, This is what Joab has spoken, so he answered me. And the king said to him, Do just as he has spoken, and execute him and bury him, so you may remove from me and from my father's house the blood which Joab shared without justification. The Lord will return his blood on his own head, because he struck two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with a sword, while my father David did not know about it. Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So their blood should return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and his descendants and his house and his throne, may there be peace in the Lord forever. Then Benaiah the son of Jehoiada went up and struck him. Sorry. And put him to death and he was buried at his own house in the wilderness. Joab was a man who was never ashamed of his sin. And he was never afraid of punishment the whole time that David was alive. Basically, he did whatever he wanted, feeling that he would never have any repercussions from King David. But as soon as Joab hears that Solomon is cleaning house, he knows that he's in trouble. God abhors wrongful violence. And Joab was a very violent man. He was guilty of shedding innocent blood, and his blood guilt for those sins had not yet been paid. 
It says in Genesis, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. So Joab flees to the tabernacle and there claimed asylum by taking hold of the horns of the altar. However, only people who were guilty of manslaughter could do this and claim the right to a trial. Whereas Joab was guilty of both murder and disloyalty to King David and King Solomon. Spurgeon writes, He did not know where to fly except to fly to the horns of the altar, which he had very seldom approached before. As far as we can judge, he had shown little respect to religion during his lifetime. He was a rough man of war and cared little enough about God or the tabernacle or the priest or the altar. But when he was in danger, he fled to that to which he had avoided and sought to make a refuge of that to which he had neglected. 1 Peter 2.16 says, We are not to use our liberty in Christ as a cloak for sin. Therefore, just because we might be one who clings to the altar of the cross of Calvary, just because we might recognize the atoning work of Christ, we cannot be deceived into thinking that we can just do whatever we want and have no repercussions. Joab was deceived. Here he finds himself at the altar thinking, surely they're not going to take me away from here. But he was wrong. The word of God has very strong things to say about those who name the name of Christ, but continually and habitually persist in their sinful ways. And refusing to respond to the chastening of the Lord, and refusing to submit to the correction of the Lord, and using their own liberty as a covering for their sin. The word of God warns that such people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Joab being dragged away from that altar should sober us to the point where we say, Lord, have I been clinging to the altar, thinking that I am free, when in reality I know I have been disobeying your commands, not learning lessons, and not allowing you to speak to me and deal with me. I don't want you to be deceived this morning. There will be people on that day who are going to be truly surprised when Jesus says, Depart from me. I never knew you. But I was holding on to the altar, they will say. Perhaps. But were you obeying the commands of the king? Or did you think you just knew a secret that no matter what you did, it wouldn't really matter? It's funny though, isn't it? No matter how brazen sinners appear to be, very often, as in this case, it only takes the, the prospect of death to wipe that defiant smirk right off of their face. You can read a hundred libraries of self-help books. You can train for triathlons and learn breathing techniques. And you can listen to the right life coaches and eat tofu and kale omelets every day if you want. Whatever you wish. But all it takes is a spot on your liver, a drunk team behind the wheel, or a short in the wires of the attic of your house to bring that little ideal world crashing all around you. We see that by refusing to leave the temple, Joab was defiant to the very end. For the last time, 
he disobeyed his king. As he had lived, so he would die on his own terms. Do not doubt that judgment will fall on every enemy of the kingdom of God who refuses to repent. The only way to be safe is to submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says there is no place in the kingdom of God for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. For they will all go to the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If we do not repent, going to church will not save us any more than going to the tabernacle save Joab. The only thing that can save us is a blood offering to atone for our guilty souls. Let's hear Spurgeon one more time. He said in contrasting Joab's unhappy end with the mercy that God has for everyone who will accept it. He writes, The Lord has appointed an altar in the person of his own dear son, Jesus Christ, where there shall be shelter for the very vilest of sinners if they do but come and lay hold thereon. Look at verse 35 with me. And the king appointed Benaiah the son of Jehoiada over the army in his place. And the king appointed Zadok the priest in place of Abiathar. Now the king sent men and sub and Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there, and do not leave there for any other place. For on the day you leave and cross the brook Kidron, you will know for certain that you will assuredly die. Your blood will be on your own head. Shimei then said to the king, The word is good. Just as my lord the king has spoken, so your servant shall do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for many days. But it came about at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Maacah, king of Gath. And others told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Then Shimei got up and saddled his donkey and went to Gath to Achish to search for his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And it was reported to Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. So the king sent men and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you depart and go anywhere, you shall assuredly die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I imposed on you? The king also said to Shimei, You yourself know all the evil that you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord will return your evil on your own head. But King Solomon will be blessed, and the throne of David will be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him so that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. In verse 35, Solomon is going to wisely reward his supporters. Zadak will replace Abiathar and Benaiah will replace Joab. Solomon once again has begun to display the organizational and the political skills that will eventually make him a legendary figure. Like Joab, David said that Shimei was not to die in peace. Graciously, though, put under house arrest by Solomon, Shimei was free to move around the whole city of Jerusalem. Now, that order was quite restricting, since at the time, Jerusalem was a small city whose circumference has been estimated at about 4,500 feet. By this means, Solomon, though, could observe Shimei at all times. 
In his earlier conduct with David, Shimei had shown himself to be a fickle creature. He tended to change with the changing circumstances, cursing David when the king was vulnerable, but begging for mercy when the king returned to power. But in due course, Shimei's unreliability emerged again. There was another change in his circumstances. It says, but it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away. For three years, Shimei lived happily, we presume, under the king's conditions. There is no reason to think that this would have been a hardship of any kind. In fact, the fact that he had two servants, or more than two apparently, suggests a reasonably comfortable existence in the capital. Only now do we learn that three years earlier, Solomon had required Shimei to also swear by the Lord. This detail omitted from the earlier account is added here because now it's crucially relevant. Why? Shimei's disobedience had this added dimension. He had broken his oath to the Lord as well as the king's command. Shimei obeyed for three years and then disobeyed. When two of his slaves ran away and went 25 miles to Gath, Shimei decided to personally go and bring them back. What's crazy is, surely he had hired someone else to go and get those slaves. But he went himself. Perhaps he thought he had already fulfilled the terms of the agreement. Or maybe he thought the guards weren't watching him. Or maybe just assuming either that Solomon wouldn't notice or wouldn't care. Shimei crossed the boundary of Jerusalem in pursuit of his escaped servants. Thus it was not only his cursing of David, but his disregard for Solomon's grace that brought about Shimei's death. If Shimei wanted to live, all he had to do was stay put and not go traipsing off to Philistia to catch up with his runaway slaves. So I ask you this morning, can we really castigate Solomon if Adonijah was stupid and Shimei careless? Most likely, he was deliberately defying Solomon and pushing the limits just to see what Solomon would do. Well, guess what? He found out. Solomon knew that Shimei had left Jerusalem, and when he returned, the king confronted him with his crime. Solomon delivered a brief but powerful speech that condemned him, first for what he did to David, and then what he had done to Solomon. And it ended with Benaiah executing Shimei the traitor. So as we finish up this morning, all the unfinished business of the kingdom has been dealt with. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. But it had not been without cost. Three people had lost their lives. But the interesting thing is, there is no record of any more bloodshed during the entire reign of Solomon. The establishment of his kingdom at the hands of this king involved the death of a prince who would, could not accept that he would not be the king, the banishment of a priest who had lost his first love, the execution of a man who had defied the king to the end, and finally the death penalty for a man who had cursed the king and forfeited the possibility of mercy because he disregarded the king's command. As we turn our thoughts from King Solomon to King Jesus, 
all of this is magnified. This is the Bible's disturbing news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and you will receive mercy. But be under no illusion. This is extremely serious. Pray with me. Lord, your kingdom is coming. Look at the lives of these men and we want to learn lessons from their life. Let us not be rebellious or lukewarm in our commitment to you. Let us realize that our service down here results in our rewards eternally. Make us kingdom-minded in all that we do, say, and think. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.